Listener Production. Kate Reed's business journey has all the makings of a Hollywood thriller. We're talking behind the scenes of Formula One racing, a memorable visit to Monaco, a life-threatening illness, huge disappointment, truckloads of passion, along with the best croissant in the world. It's a blockbuster of an episode 552 of the 12-year-old award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. And welcome back to your weekly dose of mind-blowing marketing. And a very big welcome back to all the new members of the Small Business Big Marketing Facebook group. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner, so ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that is exactly why this podcast exists as per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Kate Reed is the founder of Loon Croissantery, two retail outlets in Melbourne where each morning you'll find queues of raving fans lining up down the street before the doors have even opened. Her croissants are so good, They were voted by the New York Times as being the best croissants in the world. wonder how the French feel about that. But here's where it gets interesting. By trade, Kate is an aeronautical engineer who worked for the Williams F1 team in the UK. Three years into her dream job, she was diagnosed with anorexia and had to move back to Australia in order to heal. Now, during this time, she fell in love with baking and set out on an adventure to reverse engineer being the aerodynamic engineer that she is, the humble croissant. And boy, oh boy, did she succeed. I loved chatting with Kate. She's passionate, crazy intelligent, highly driven, and has one of those businesses we'd all love. One that sells out every day, has people all over the world talking about it, plus she bakes an unbelievable almond croissant. They're my go-to in case you were wondering. Here she is talking about what it's like being an aerodynamic engineer for the Williams F1 team. Oh, that's taking me back really, isn't it? Um, So first of all, that was 15 years ago now, but I do have pretty clear memories of it because it was something that I'd been working towards for at least a decade, if not longer. So the dream of what I thought it would be was painted so clearly and perfectly in my mind. The first week that I started at Williams when I started in the aerodynamics department, that was the most highly protected in terms of privacy and secrecy. So we had our own whole facility where the security clearance to get in was the strictest of the entire organisation. I was the only female in the building, so much so that they didn't even have a female toilet. So myself and Sir Frank shared the disabled toilet. I remember being taken into the wind tunnel for the first time and like it was truly a pinch yourself moment that Uh, Williams had both a 60% scale testing tunnel and then the full scale, which was rare at the time, with a rolling road. So you could test components at 60% and if they proved to be better than the baseline, we would then build them to full scale and put them on the racing car and you'd actually have the Formula One car 
sitting on the rolling road in the wind tunnel. And it was pretty magical getting to do that type of testing. That's really what I'd been working towards. Totally. The reason I ask, because we are here to talk about loon and all things croissants and, and yummy stuff, but clearly it says something about you as a person and it's clearly influenced what you've ended up doing with croissants. But you obviously like precision, innovation, perfection. Is that the kind of person that you are? I think you've just described me perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Summed it up. Yeah. So the reason that I wanted to work in Formula One was I never had any interest in doing anything other than the best and the most elite. And Formula One to is- To this date. To, to this, this date, yeah. And uh, Formula One is the most elite of motor racing. And all I wanted to do was be involved with the smartest and best people in the world coming up with the most innovative and interesting solutions that would hopefully then make their way and cascade down into a more commercial application. But I wanted to be at the forefront of that technology. Clearly no uh, dummy. How do you get a job like that? Um, I studied at- RMIT, uh, their degree in aerospace engineering, which including a practicum or a one-year internship over in Germany at Volkswagen was a five-year program that incorporated also an honours thesis at the end, which was a compulsory component. It wasn't your choice. Mm -hmm. But I also did things like in my final couple of years of university, I volunteered for a Formula 3 team to learn about the mechanics and like there's no point designing the most incredible aerodynamic component on a car if it takes three hours to change because that puts you out of the race. Mm -hmm. It has to work well in its aerodynamic design, but it also has to be easy and fast for the mechanics to change. And I really wanted to understand what it was like to practically work on a car. What's your greatest learning or takeaway or fondest memory of working for the Williams F1 team? It probably wasn't work, but it was related. My dad and I, who I gained my love of motor racing through, we would sit up every second Sunday night and watch the European races around the world from as young as I can remember. And mm -hmm. every May when the Monaco Grand Prix rolled around, there was this little stand where the cars come out of the tunnel um, and it's incredibly narrow. And dad and I always dreamt that maybe one day we could go to Monaco and sit in that stand. So the first year that I was working at Williams, dad flew over to the UK to have a holiday with me and we got tickets in that stand. That anyway, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. But I was living with one of the Williams race mechanics and he knew that I was going to be down at Monaco. So he called me on the Friday and he said, hey, where are you and your dad? And I said, oh, we're sitting in our stand. And he's like, come to the pits. <laughs> so dad and I are hanging out with like Jackie Stewart and the drivers and like all of the riffraff that Tight. yeah, just standing like standing in the pits above the car, watching what was going on, and you've and peaked. It, you know what? It was an early peak. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. but interestingly enough, that dream job didn't meet your expectations. No, it didn't. What happened? I think there were a lot of things that I did love about it, but because I'd dreamt for so long and about what this job would mean, my expectations so were so high. I think unreasonably mm -hmm. high. And maybe I'd built it to be this incredibly fulfilling, creative opportunity to work with the best in the world. But when your team isn't winning, and I, I, I say that because I do think if your team's at the front of the grid, you do get to be the ones really pushing the envelope. Yeah. But if you're one of the teams chasing, there's an awful lot of pressure to catch that team winning. So rather than being able to think outside of the box and be incredibly creative, you're just you trying just, to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not on the uh, offensive. You're on the defensive and just trying to- Correct. Trying to catch up. And it was an incredibly stressful environment to work in. And I mean, I heard a statistic while I was there that something like 
5,000 CVs hit the desk every week. So if you don't want that job or if you're not putting in 16 hours a day Mm. showing that you're committing your entire existence to this job, you're so disposable because there are 5,000 people every week waiting there to take your job. So the pressure is immense. Mm -hmm. It's not a particularly positive environment to work in. I had no support. I'd moved my whole life over there. So I was a single young person with these incredibly high expectations and dreams as to what I thought that job would mean. And it just didn't translate as that. Like there were magic moments, like the wind tunnel testing are probably some of my fondest and most fulfilling memories Mm -hmm. of that time. But they were few and far between. And I mean, we can't measure the happiness of our life by those single moments. It has to be by the day-to-day feel of how you feel in your life. How do you feel at the end of every day? And I started to feel more and more depressed. Were you glad you did it? Would you be here today doing what you're doing with Loon if you hadn't been through I I all that pain? I wouldn't change a single wouldn't moment of my it. life. Like it's, it was critical and imperative to making me the human that I am now, not just professionally, but also personally. Mm-hmm. And I'm the type of person that if I have a dream or a goal, I can't not work towards it to try to achieve it and throw everything at it. And I just don't think I would have ever been able to forgive myself mm. if I'd not achieved that. So Amazing. it's made me who I am now. So you got depressed. You got quite sick. I did get quite sick. What happened? Uh, depression turned into an eating disorder, anorexia, which funnily enough does tend to affect more perfectionist type people that like control. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm very numbers driven, obviously. And anorexia is the type of disease that feeds off that type of perfectionism. Like when you base everything on things like eating and exercise, everything that can be measured in numbers. So intake of calories and burning of calories, weight measurements. And I just developed the most frightening spreadsheet, which looked like it should have belonged in a Formula One team, but it was actually all about my health and my my physical makeup. Describe that spreadsheet. Oh, I would measure every item of food that I would eat every day, like weigh it. I would then, I had this like I'd research. I should ask you, are you okay to talk about this? Yeah, totally. Great. I'm Thank very you. pragmatic about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, um, anyone who's experiencing this kind of stuff probably just always like to say, give Lifeline a call or speak to someone close to you. Absolutely. Because, you, know, you can't do all by yourself. It's something that I'm actually happy to talk about because Thank when you. I was going through it for both myself and my family, there was a real lack of support. Mm. And if I can speak pragmatically about it from a recovery perspective, then maybe it will increase the awareness out there. So your spreadsheet? Yeah. So I would weigh every element of food that I ate. I then had access to websites where I could calculate the amount of calories that I'd had. So I would then weigh myself at the same time every morning, like in the exact same scenario. And then I would record my weight, the calorie intake, exactly what I'd eaten, certain measurements. And I would track graphs of how it was going. And basically, if the weight number wasn't going down, then it was a very bad day for me. So what, like I hadn't succeeded Mm-hmm. in my goal or my pursuit that day. And it once your weight drops below a certain dangerous level, it changes a chemical makeup in your brain and you lose the ability of full rational thought. And that's when you become really unwell mentally with the disease. So, Was this a slow burn over time? It sounds like it's not something that happened one day. Like no. this, this, this illness that you had, I mean, it, maybe you were showing signs early on of having it, but... I imagine months and months must have gone by until, what, did someone tap you on the shoulder? How, lo- how low did you get? Uh, I think it was probably four or five months before people started showing real concern. And it's funny, like you go through this phase where like you do, like you look 
like you're in your peak fitness because you probably hit like athletic yeah, right. fitness stage. Lean and mean. And people say, you look amazing. Uh, and and this what's deemed as a positive comment, have you lost weight? Now, I didn't need to lose weight before I got sick, but people frame it in a positive way and it's almost positive feedback to you like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then when you drop below that number, people stop saying it to you, which is really the sign like, People don't know how to say, oh, you look really unwell mm. or, and there are only a couple of people and typically it's people that have maybe suffered something similar, put up their hands and you're surprised who does. They put up their hands and they just say, I'm a bit worried about you. But I went home for Christmas that year with my boyfriend at the time and mum and dad pulled him aside and said, we're quite worried about Kate, but that was only the start of it. So I got down to about 39 kilos and for someone of my height, mm-hmm. that is I think that's incredibly underweight anyway. Mm. So For anyone. Yep. Of your height and age and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So turning point, did the boyfriend do something about it or? No, dad ended up. Um, You're not going back, Kate. You're staying here. No, I went back and it got to the point with my boyfriend where he just didn't know how to manage it anymore. And like the mood swings were wild because of this irrational thought and also just deep depression. Mm. And he ended up calling mum and dad one night and saying, I just, I'm not capable of managing this and she's becoming very unhealthy. So dad got on a plane and flew to the UK and in two days packed up my life and brought me home. Wow. And that was a very firm line in the sand of the end of my engineering career. And I actually didn't want to be a part of it anymore. You weren't kicking and screaming. You're going, oh, no, no. It's my best job in the world. No. Wind tunnels. It was like someone gave me permission to let go nice. because I'm someone who's super stubborn. Yep. And my pride will force me to keep going, mm-hmm. but my health and I guess my dad at the time gave me permission. And it's funny that it was my dad because he's the one that I developed the love for F1 with. Hmm. And I felt like I was really letting him down at the time, but actually I've learned since all he and my mum have ever wanted is for me to be happy. And dad was never upset with me for not pursuing that. All he wanted was me, me to be happy and healthy. So came back to Australia and an interesting flip side of developing anorexia is that you become, all you can think about is food because you're starving. So yeah, your body's right. sending signals to your brain and I have a sweet tooth and- Must go with being a reed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your poison? Cronuts. <laughs> and you've left one in the car. I'm very disappointed I've about this. I've got an almond croissant for you. Oh, gee. Yep. Hello. <laughs> I'll bring it up after the Thank interview. You. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So sweet tooth. So, So when you're hungry, all you can think about is the thing that you want to eat the most. Mm -hmm. And all I could think about was baked goods. So instead of eating them, I live vicariously through the process of making them. And it started when I was still living in the UK. I would bake anything and everything I could think of and I'd take it into the office the next day. And that living vicariously is twofold. First of all, I get to go and procure the ingredients and then turn something that is inedible by itself, like flour or raw sugar or raw eggs. Mm -hmm. And then you get to pull it out of the oven and you've created this incredibly delicious creation that you then take to the office the next day and you live vicariously through seeing the enjoyment of other people eating it. And I started to form this idea that maybe instead of being an engineer, it might be nice to be a pastry chef. But I didn't want to throw away five more years of my life in study to then find the same thing and discover that it wasn't what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So 
I came back to Australia and I got a job at the beautiful Philippa's Bakery in Armadale, mm-hmm. just working on the counter. A bit different. Like uh, you, um, you, you came back to Australia, still crook. A very. Recovery it, it was probably, time, what's the kind of time period that took? Oh, three, four years. Oh, okay. So you got three or four years back home. Yeah, but getting the, better. But and, and the day my plane landed, you're at 39 kilos. Pastries and things. No, I, I applied for the job at Philippus oh, and you got did. it. So I was. You're a machine. But I just wanted to be around it. And I'm somebody that needs, I need a reason. Right. You to weren't live about to go day. and lie in bed or on the couch no. and feel sorry for yourself. You're like, you're, you had the, the strength of mind, I guess, to go, you know what? I've got to keep moving. strength of body, but my strength of mind can override that. Wow. Maybe to my own detriment. But in this instance, like, I'm sitting here fine, so I'm saying to my benefit. Yeah. So you get a job at Philippa's day one. Yep. For those and don't know Philippa's, it's just a bespoke, lovely bakery in Melbourne. It's absolutely beautiful. It's amazing. And to great this day. Great granola. Great granola. Great granola. Oh, and their Tuscan olive bread. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Hello. I still and that's like not even sweet, we like it. I know. It's so good. So you get a job there. You're on the you're on the cash register. You're not well, baking or anything. No, but I figured it was a good opportunity to put myself in the workplace and see if it was something that I might want to pursue. And I absolutely loved it. But the only thing that frustrated me was that I wasn't baking the things that we were selling and putting out on the counter. So it was enough of an indication for me that I maybe want to pursue that. So I got a job at the most beautiful little cafe around the corner from mum and dad's house. I was living with them at the Mm -hmm. time, owned by this beautiful couple called Mary and Alec. And Mary was a highly trained chef and Al was a plumber who had taught himself to make coffee so he could support Mary in running the business. But she came from a, um, a Mediterranean family. Like I think her family came from Constantinople so she was Greek, but obviously that was that then became Istanbul. But her food was very inspired by that region. And that was where I truly learned my love of like beautifully prepared food that's been made with love. Mm-hmm. And I was so lucky. She gave me the opportunity to come in four hours every morning and do all the baking under her guidance. Oh, wow. And like I'd never had a role like this before. What did she see in you? So you're at Philippa's, you're on the register. She saw my passion, passion. and she also mm-hmm. saw my sickness. And she pulled me aside months later and she said, the first day you walked in that door, I knew you were unwell and what was wrong with you. And I wanted to provide you with an environment of support where you could learn and grow and become healthier. Like Angel Mary. Angel Mary. And she's also one of the most beautiful cake bakers and and would do these incredible tarts. And I just, I was really given a cotton wool environment there where, with a lot of love, where I got to learn what it was like to bake commercially rather than at home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was working for Mary at the time and I'd started to form a bit of an interest in French. You left, you left Philippa's? Yep. Okay. So I'd started to form a bit of an interest in French pastry because although I loved baking cakes and biscuits and stuff, French pastry is very technical and that really appealed mm. to my engineering side. Yep. So... I'd bought, I think online, a book, a coffee table book of Paris patisseries. And I got home from work one day and it had arrived. I sat on the floor and randomly opened it. And here's this double page spread photo of pan au chocolat all stacked up. And it was really zoomed in. You could see every perfect defined layer. Like you could taste them. They were coming out of the book. I closed the book and I walked up to Flight Centre in Camberwell and booked myself a flight to Paris. 
before she did. As you do. Wow. I'm sure mum and dad were devastated yeah, when they yeah. found out that they're oh, like... Not to mention Mary, who's just lost a staff, <laughs> her favourite staff member, who she's trained up in her ways. No. So oh, I, okay. I get to work the next day yeah. and I tell Mary excitedly and she's like, oh my God, I'll come with you. Oh. So after work, she went up and booked a flight. flight. Yeah. And then Al sulked for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and finally, Mary was like, Alec, what's going on? Yeah. Like, you've been in a bad mood. He's yeah. like, no one, no one asked if I wanted to come. Oh, someone's got to do the coffees, mate, back at the cafe. <laughs> right. So anyway, a couple of months later, the three of us were on a plane to Paris. Well, they shut the shop. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> do you have this effect on people where you just go like, <laughs> you're so determined, you're on a mission that people not. just kind of grab your coattails and go, well, I'll go where she's going. Well, I was lucky enough that Mary let me jump on her coattails yes. for the business. So, And we'd formed a really close friendship by this stage as well. So you take off, to, where are you going? Do you have somewhere to go in Paris or are you just going? No, no, we just went for a holiday. Oh, just so a holiday. we were going to spend a week in Paris. We booked a beautiful Airbnb in Saint-Germain. Yeah. And then we booked about three weeks traveling around France as well. So With, with the idea of kind of interrogating. No, the, just having a holiday. Oh, just a holiday. Yep. So okay. this photo literally inspired, I hadn't traveled in several years, like I'd been too unwell to, and I was I wasn't at a healthy weight again, but I was starting to make my way back to health and I was having, I had a purpose in life. Like Mary and going to the cafe every day gave me something that to get up and do that I really loved. Mm -hmm. So I was starting to feel a bit adventurous again. Anyway, Mary and Al put up with me for six days in Paris and then on the last day they said, do you mind if we have a day to ourselves? And I was quite pleased to have a day to mm -hmm. myself. No and I thought I'll walk over to Canal Saint-Martin and go to the bakery where that photo was taken. So it was about a 45-minute walk. I get there, I walk into this beautiful, fully restored Belle Epoque bakery and, you know, the bottom of a houseman, the houseman oh, architecture. Wow. And there's the mosaic ceilings and then there are those pan sitting on the counter, but all the other things they do. And I think I was standing in the middle of the shop with my jaw on the ground and the vendeurs laughed at me and said something in French and I explained in broken French that I didn't speak French very well. Mm -hmm. And so she went and got the owner who did speak English and I explained to him that I'd seen the photo of his boulangerie in a book and it had made me book the trip. And on that, he went and started wrapping up all these pastries and gave them to me for free and I went and sat on the steps of Sacre-Cœur and nibbled at them all. And the next day when we caught the train down to the south of France, we checked into our hotel and it wasn't a payphone, it was that little room that used to have the computer with the internet oh, on it. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I searched the website for the boulangerie and I sent him an email thanking him. And at the bottom of the email, I said, Can I have a job? Well, would you consider taking an apprentice? And he wrote back to me within an hour and he said, look, no, not normally. Look, you don't speak French and we're very small here, but I can see the same passion in you that's in me. When do you want to start? So a few months later, I was back on a plane to Paris mm. and I ended up not staying for the full apprenticeship because... The cafe that I was working at at the time, Three Bags Full in Abbotsford, which mm. was owned by Nathan Tolman, who's now one of my business partners. Right. He contacted me about a month in and said, look, we're expanding the cafe. We'd really love it if you came back. And I thought, I'd only worked in the raw pastry kitchen making the croissant pastry and, and things like that. I thought, yeah, I've learned a lot. I could go back and maybe I can come back to France if they don't need me anymore. So I came back to Australia and. I just, I discovered in Paris what an amazing croissant could be. And all I wanted to do when I got back to Melbourne was relive those moments where I'd go out and I'd 
line up at a bakery and buy a perfect croissant and mm. and have that memory again. And I started going to all the bakeries around Melbourne on my days of like, today will be the day. Today I'll find that perfect Paris croissant. And there was nothing. Nothing. And it was really, it seemed to me like croissants in Australia were a token product that had to be on the counter because we're a bakery. Mm-hmm. So we need to offer a croissant, but we mm-hmm. don't need to put any love, care, attention or good ingredient into it. Mm-hmm. And so I finally started to form this idea that, well, I might have the knowledge. Maybe maybe I could make croissants and I don't want to do a whole bakery. I want to specialize in one thing. And Melbourne is famous for its amazing coffee. Maybe I could I could approach a few espresso bars and supply them with amazing croissants. So you can walk in and have a great Melbourne coffee and a great croissant at the same time like I was doing in Paris. So that was the seed of the idea for Loon. Wow. What Describe what the perfect French croissant looks, tastes, feels like before you started making them. So I think I'd never eaten a croissant that had been made with really good quality butter. And butter is the core ingredient of a croissant. It's the thing that defines the flavor. It it has an effect on the color, the greasiness, the experience of what you're eating. And like a lot of the croissants out there aren't made with butter. They're made with margarine or vegetable fat. So, Mm -hmm. and like maybe growing up, that's what I'd been used to. Mm -hmm. So when it's made with good butter, it, it eats cleaner. It's got like a nutty complexity of flavor to it. The pastry flakes differently. It's shinier. It's more golden. It's lighter. Can you just go down to your car and get that one? <laughs> Gee Give me two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I had Declan Lee on this show a number of years ago. Declan is the founder of Gelato Messina. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And he- It's my favorite. It is pretty good. Yeah, I'd line up there a couple of times a week in Fitzroy. A couple of times a week? Yeah. I love it. I love the boysenberry. Thanks, Declan. Oh, oh. I salted caramel for me every day of the week. Oh, so um, good. <laughs> but but he'd, um, he'd just gone through the process where he couldn't- he, Milk is underlying any great gelato- product and yep. he couldn't get the right milk here. So he just bought some land out in Dalesford and had created a, a whole paddock of, you know, dairy cows and that's, he's creating his own milk. Isn't so that amazing? I reckon <laughs> you're probably not that far. Are you about to start some dairy farm in order to create butter? Well, it's funny because when I first started Loon, I spent a lot of time testing all of the different butters and I landed on this one that's from a small dairy co-op on the north coast of France in a tiny little region in Normandy. And that little region where the pastures are 300 years ago, it was underwater. The seas receded and it left Uh. this ocean minerality in the soil that is literally irreplicable. And like I've actually been to the dairy co-op and they very rarely let people through, but they gave me a tour. And I believe now we're one of two people in Australia that has use of their butter because our demands are just becoming higher and higher for quantity. Uh, Our being loon. Loon, and, yes. So are you importing your butter? Yep. <laughs> and I've it. I've tried Australian butter yeah. and while you it's can't get close. While it's delicious, mm. it doesn't have the same working properties mm-hmm. as this particular French butter. So when you laminate butter What you, does that mean? Like cover it in plastic? When when you cover when you cover it in dough. Right. So you can get the standard Thanks of plastic. For the laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it took me a second there. <laughs> Yeah. So laminating is like is creating the layers of dough and butter that you need for croissant pastry. And if your butter has a really low melting temperature, you have to work with it very cold, which means that it's brittle and there's more likelihood of it breaking. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have sections of, of your dough that have no butter laminated through them. Mm-hmm. But this particular dairy in Normandy, 
has figured out how to change their churning process. I think they they wouldn't show me this room, but I believe they churn it at a different temperature and rate and it changes the structure of the fat globules. So no additives, but it has a higher melting temperature and it's more elastic and the water particles are more emulsified like evenly and finely throughout it. Yeah. So I haven't found another butter in the world that has the same working properties without additive and the flavour of it is I, I can't repeat it. I don't know what you just said then, but it was incredibly impressive. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, I, can, I can see, you know, that, that line between being an aerodynamic engineer for an F1 team and doing what you're doing, it's very clear. It, yeah. on, on, on paper, it just looks nonsense. Yeah, and people say- But having now met you, it's just like, it's, it's so obvious. Yeah, and there's, you can go so deep into the detail, and I have. Like, no doubt. And just the ingredients is just the start of it. Like, quite, Do you ever they, go mad, like a mad professor, where you just so deep down into a- into a theory or I an think idea. Many people in my life would argue yes. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> Fantastic. There's a high risk to loon if your product relies on this butter from Normandy. Yep. That's a high risk, isn't it? Because there could be a whole lot of things happen. I don't know, you know, like just getting imported. COVID's obviously affected us. Yep, there Should, could be. Yeah. But right. um what, we, we do your... have we have contingency built right. in. Would we... I know? If would I go if you gave me No the, no. No. So like why it, does it matter? Um, there is another French butter on the market that the taste is very similar. The only thing about that one is the one that I chose for us to use, the cows graze on pasture for 11 months of the year. The other one is grain fed for six months of the year. And therefore, like sometimes during the year when we get our butter, it's almost white. And that's butter that's come from the winter. Mm-hmm. with the winter milk, but when it's come from the summer milk, it's bright yellow because Beautiful. the yellow flowers in the grass. Oh, wow. But for our chefs working with the butter, the working properties make such a big difference to the efficiency and the quality of the pastry. Mm-hmm. The other butter that we sometimes use, if, for example, there's a problem with supply, the taste is very, very similar, but it's harder to work with, so it makes the chef's job a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when we're going up in quantity, you want to make the chef's job as easy as possible because it's already such an involved technical job to create the pastry to the level that we do that you want to make it as easy and efficient mm-hmm. for them so they can focus on the detail and the perfection of the product. So let's just go back. So where we got to was that you'd gone to Paris on a holiday. You'd found this amazing uh, chocolate, what do you call it? Pa- Pain au chocolat. Pain au chocolat. <laughs> or say. if you're from the south of France, chocolatine. Easy. Chocolatine. That's better. So then you go, okay, and you come back here early. You come back and then you write to that guy and he gives you an apprenticeship, which you don't finish because your friend back in Abbotsford Cafe is expanding and he wants you to run one of the new cafes. But in between that time, you've hit on the perfect croissant ingredients. Well, no. So I've just been (laughs) searching for the perfect one. And then I decide that maybe I could create it. So Mm -hmm. I find this tiny space down in Elwood. For the cafe you're about to manage, not for your own cafe. No, this is about a year after I come back. I'm searching, searching right. for the perfect space. Find this tiny little space down in Elwood. I spend my life savings on croissant making bakery equipment, fit it out, come up with the name, create the brand, the little logo, get my business cards made, start thinking about maybe what businesses I want to supply. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to start testing. So the first time I make the dough, which is loosely based on the recipe I make in France, but 
as I've been making it in France, I've already identified some things that I would like to change of that recipe. So the recipe version 1.0 is already my adaptation of that recipe. And the one that I landed on is actually very different Mm -hmm. to what I learned. But first time I tip the dough out on the bench and I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do next. Because my job in Paris for the month I'd been there had been making the dough. And then I begged the head pastry chef to let me roll croissants. But I didn't learn all the steps in between making the dough and getting the pastry to the stage where you can roll the croissants. I'm like... How could someone like you miss these steps? Well, I just thought that it would be clear. (laughs) But instead of going back and learning or watching YouTube videos or going and doing a pastry making course, I'm like, hang on, I'm an engineer. I can reverse engineer this. If I think about what would make up that perfect finished product for me, just work backwards from that. And it was probably about a two or three month process from there where I taught myself how to laminate, shape, prove and bake. And because I taught myself based on reverse engineering this product, the process that we've ended up with at Loon is actually very different to a classic French way of making a croissant. Mm -hmm. But because it's different, it's not tied to this centuries-old technique that's been passed down from master baker to master baker. And because of that, it's open to interpretation every day at Loon that if one of our chefs thinks that they can improve the process or the recipe, just like in Formula One, you test it. Mm -hmm. And if it's better than the baseline, it's the new process. So it's a constantly evolving technique and product. Mm -hmm. So So. so you've hit on the perfect croissant. Did Did you... Video the process and send it to your mate in... Absolutely uh, not. I respect him too much to do (laughs) that. And I still think his product is incredible as well. What do you think his reaction would be? Ah, I don't know what I just said there, but it sounded French and angry. I think he's thrilled for me. And I also hope he's proud because he gave me those foundational blocks Mm. to build this business. Mm -hmm. So, like, he doesn't just make croissants. And that's one of the things why I wanted to just make croissants is... I find with most bakeries, either their bread is amazing and their pastries yeah. are average or reverse or everything's average. And all I wanted to do was make one outstanding product where anything else outside didn't suffer mm. as a result of the focus on that product. So I thought, well, I'll just make one product. So often though, my local bakery is the same. They do one thing incredibly well and everything else is almost like, oh, we need to do that. We need to do the salad rolls and the breads and the coffee scrolls. Exactly. And it's like... Why? It's just kind of, they don't really give it any thought, do they? It's just like everyone else has done that, so we better do the same thing. Exactly. We don't get any innovation. We don't get any improvement. We don't get amazing little businesses like Loon where you're doing one thing exceptionally well. I do now looking around the Melbourne food scene and even beyond that into more artisanal crafts, I do think there is a huge market of people specialising in well, one food, thing. food trucks do this really well, don't they? Like yeah, that's if, I, true. if I see a food truck, it's like they're, they're selling what – they're either doing awesome fish tacos or awesome pulled pork or yep. awesome ice cream. Cubanos. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. That's like – do you think it's smart business to focus on one thing or is it dangerous? Is it- I think if you've done your research and you know that there's a market out there and you're confident in your product, then I think it's smart business. They say one's a dangerous number in business. Whoever they are. Do they say that? Well, I've heard that. I think there's even a book about that. There's also a book called The One Thing. So there's, like everything, there's two schools of thought, aren't there? But you go, all of a sudden, if croissants go out of fashion, so does Loon. So here's the thing. Not that they're going to. I think that some products like cronuts might go out of fashion. Careful what you say about cronuts. I know, sorry. I'll still make you one. It's okay, even when they're out of fashion. (laughs) 
We've got the same surname after all. That's right. And I'm out of <laughs> Look fashion, after the so reeds. Yeah. So am I. <laughs> but I think this is one of the questions that Nathan Tolman posed to Cameron and I, my business partner and brother. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, do you think croissants will go out of fashion? And I said, there's a very good chance that Cruffins will or like all of these crazy Frankenstein type pastries. <laughs> But people have been eating croissants for an awfully long time and I think there will always be a market for a very well-made croissant because it's, you know, it's the breakfast food of an entire nation mm. and there's memory attached to that. And I think that, that that very simple classic product, if you continue to focus on making that well, and while we do play around with crazy flavours at Loon, so we're technically not a business of one, like... Our croissant pastry makes up to 15 different flavors and varieties every month where we can be creative. But a lot of our innovation doesn't necessarily go into coming up with these new flavors. A lot of our innovation and energy goes into continually improving mm. the croissant pastry and the plain croissant. Okay. Let's so, come to that because I'm interested in innovation in business. But where we got to with your business was you'd set up in Elwood, yep. a little seaside village in Melbourne, inner city village in Melbourne. It really feels like that, yeah. It does. Is that Loon or is that... That was Loon. That was Loon. That's yep. the first incarnation. June 2012. So okay. I'm coming up on my nine-year birthday. Right. But you're yep. no longer in Elwood. You've gone no. to Brunswick and, and into the city. Into Fitzroy. Into Fitzroy. Yeah. So why the move? Did, did you hit on... Was it so successful that you outgrew Elwood? That's or? correct. Wow. But the, the initial incarnation of Loon was a small wholesale croissantery that uh-huh. supplied espresso bars, which I did by myself for 18 months uh-huh. and worked... 90 to 100 hours a week. Loving it. Often solo. Loving the work, but absolutely working myself into the ground, making pennies. And like, you have to do this at the start. Like, Did you get sick again? No. No, I didn't. How come? Um, I think because I was loving what I was doing. On and purpose? You asked me before how I recovered. I actually think Loon assisted my recovery because the... Anorexia, I didn't, my brain didn't have room for it anymore because suddenly instead of worrying about all these little things that I was worrying about with the numbers of the spreadsheet, I was worried about how have the croissants proven today? What type of butter am I going to use? What customers am I going to get? All these little details that pushed all the little thoughts of anorexia out of my mind. Plus you're also in 100% control as a business owner now. You're not yes. answering to anyone at the Williams team. You're not exactly. under pressure from anyone. I'm it's, making all... It's all like, your decisions. And... You needed to be a small business owner from day one. I think I probably did because that period of time where it was all up to me, I've never had more job variety. Like I was doing everything from making the pastries, doing the invoicing, the sourcing of stock, the deliveries, the cleaning, the accounts. Like I was so stimulated, like both physically and mentally in my work, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't sustainable. Like nobody can keep up 90 to 100 hours a week working by themselves. And And you must be employing at some point at this stage. totally by myself. Okay. So it got to the point where I was supplying some fantastic little cafes around Melbourne, like Patricia Coffee Brewers in the city, Everyday Coffee in Collingwood, Clement Coffee at South Melbourne Market. They were probably the three. Big names. Yep. And I'd show up every morning and there'd be a queue of people waiting for me to get there. Particularly at Patricia, like I'd say bring a hundred pastries a day and then when I showed up, there'd be a stack of paper bags with people's orders written on them no. and the pastries wouldn't even make it to the counter. And then I think Le Monde, the how French did, how did that news- make you feel? 
oh, incredibly fulfilled. Here comes the croissant rock star. It, it felt like, <laughs> you know, I'd be by myself for like 20 hours a day and then I'd have this beautiful yeah, hour yeah. every morning when I'd do my deliveries and I'd see people enjoying them. And that's a critical moment because I started to get to the point where doing the wholesale and spending all day by myself but not actually really getting to witness people mm. enjoying that moment of buying them and eating them. About 18 months in, my brother had owned a cafe in Port Melbourne that I was supplying as well. Mm-hmm. And they'd sold it and he was looking for his next venture. And I'd had the idea of converting the little shop in Elwood from the wholesale bakery to a customer-facing bakery, but I had zero experience dealing with retail. Mm -hmm. And Cam was really experienced. And so I said to him, do you want to come on board and help me convert Loon from wholesale to retail? And I think initially his idea was, I'll come in and help out my sister with this little like hobby business and then I'll go do my thing. But within weeks of opening, a queue started to develop at the door and it would be earlier and earlier and longer and longer. And I think very quickly Cameron realized that there was something really special in this. So then he fully committed to Loon and making that his next big project. So, but, so a couple of things there. Uh, wholesale to retail, why? You're going so well, you're rolling well, up Well, like why these- would you sell a product at a wholesale markdown price if you can take the full retail? Yeah, you take all the work out of delivery and invoicing and you get to interact with your customers Got directly. It. Okay. And you also get to control how uh, the products serve to them, which is maybe the most critical thing. C words are very big in your life, croissants, control. <laughs> critical. <laughs> critical, that's right. So <laughs> the other question around that was just the line that was developing, clearly l- lining up for an awesome product, but a bit of a tribe, a bit of a like people are belonging to something. Did oh, you get I'll a tell sense you what, of- we were open Friday, Saturday, Sunday mornings. And it got That's to, it. yep, because it was just too much work. Like it's a three-day process. Even Cam and I, will, we'd start work at like 3.45 in the morning and finish up at eight or nine o'clock at night. And we were working six and a half days a week. And that was to produce for those three days. Every Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, I reckon the first 10 people in line were exactly the same people every morning. And it got to the point where maybe the first four or five were there when we got there at 3.30 in the morning. And by 6.30, there was a line of over 100 people around the block in Seaside Village, Elwood. It was wild. Like we had the police drop in because there was like rumours that there was something dodgy going on down in Elwood. Why were all these people here? There was one great morning where um, this guy finally got to the front of the line and it was an election day. And he thought he was standing in the queue to vote. <laughs> ah, I love it. He's standing in the queue to eat, not vote. And Cam's like, well, you're here now, mate. Do you want to buy some croissants? He's like, oh, I may as well. We've <laughs> been that here for five fantastic. hours. So you are selling it three days. At what, at what point do you leave Elwood, go to Fitzroy, So Nathan- open seven days a week? Well, Nathan Tolman had just opened Kettle Black. I think it was August 2014. Mm. And he invited Cam and I along to the opening party. This is a fancy cafe in Abbotsford. In Albert Park. In Albert Park. Yep, yeah, so this he's opened several, like he opened Top Paddock and then Kettle Black and then Higher Ground and has gone on and on. He's really like the leading voice when it comes to cafes in Melbourne. Mm. So Cam and I are at the party and we know we're outgrowing this space like we're opening at eight in the morning and we're selling out by nine and it's starting to get to the point where it's almost negative that we're turning so many people away. Mm. And we realise that the demand is 
so outweighing what we can supply. And so we're starting to think about moving to a bigger premises. And we said to Nathan, look, you get offered sites all the time. If anything comes up for you that you think is great, but you can't use it and you think it might be appropriate for us, could you let us know? He said, oh, it's funny you said that. I signed a lease at the start of the year on this amazing warehouse in Fitzroy, but I don't really know what to do with it. And he gave us the keys. He said, just go have a look. So Cam and I walk into this empty shed of 150-year-old warehouse on Rose Street in Fitzroy, and it's vast, like 440 square metres. Is that like a back street or side street? It's on a, it's on a main drag. No, it's a side street. Side street, yeah. It's unmarked and nondescript, and we both love it. And it reminds us of that scene in Ocean's Eleven where they find that disused warehouse at the docks, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they build that perfect replica of the bank vault. And Cam and I are like, we're currently working in 20 square metres. This is 440. It's so much more than we need, but we both fell in love with it. And we thought, you could make a really amazing bakery here. So we ended up saying to Nathan that we'd like to give it a go. And then he proposed to us that he come in as a minority business partner and help us grow. So That's pretty handy. First of all, there there would have been no other option. Like- we got the best guy in the business on our side, providing us with the most incredible opportunity for a site. And his experience behind him in cafe growth and his understanding of Melbournians and how they interact with morning and daytime hospitality, mm-hmm. um, it was the best decision ever. And he's been the most incredible business partner to us where really up until maybe about six months ago, he's literally let us run the show. and. If we ever need advice or we've got a question for him, he's there with full support, but he's never told us how to run the business, putting full trust in us. Six months ago, Nathan, we asked him to come on board and because he'd expressed to us he would like to, to come on board in a more full-time nature. And he's now, as the director, his role is growth development. Wow. So he's always been the one that's come to us with, for example, the CBD site, He was offered that and he said, I actually think that'd be a great opportunity for Loon to open a little satellite store in the city. We're opening in Brisbane in three months and he was offered that site and he said, I don't think it's good for a cafe, but I think it'd be amazing for Loon. Mm -hmm. And similarly, early next year, we'll be opening in Sydney and we have the most incredible site in Sydney that was offered to Nathan. So where is it? Chippendale. I don't know. It's just west of the CBD. Like it's almost above Central Station. Yeah, okay. Tell me, just um, going back, so you leave Elwood to go to Fitzroy. Had you made enough dough, excuse the pun, there had to be one dad joke in this in this interview, had you made enough, <laughs> you just put a fair bit of dough in the bank. <laughs> Thank you, Carter. Someone Look, finds me funny. I think um, we hadn't banked a lot of dough, but it was simply because we couldn't produce enough. Like, we, you know, we were healthy right. down at Elwood. We were easily paying our rent. You did, and, you did the numbers. You realised that, hey, listen, right now, not affordable on on paper, but we can make this work real quick. If we get into a bigger space, we're going to be producing more. We're going to be having more customers. I'll be- tell you what, it was a steep learning curve though, because we essentially went, Cam and I were the only two full-time employees. We had a barista that would come and work the three mornings a week that we were open down at Elwood. And then we had a girl working for us part-time who would come and help out with assisting with the pastry. Mm-hmm. And then we went to a 440 square meter site where we obviously had the capacity to produce a lot more, but those first six months was such a learning experience. Like I think when we first moved to Fitzroy, we were only opening Friday, Saturday, Sunday as well. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have like a $15,000 a year lease in Elwood anymore. We had a Fitzroy lease. Everything was more expensive. How much? 
uh, I think it was around about the 70 grand mark. Wow. Still not too bad no, for such times. a big space. Um, Plus equipment, you've got to fill it out. Oh, we went into a big debt immediately. Like it was expensive to fit the space out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember our accountant giving us a number that we needed to be turning over every week to meet loan repayments. And we had an emergency meeting a few months in. And like we were flat out. Like there was lines around the block every morning. We were selling out like from the outsider's perspective, it looked incredibly healthy. And then we had an emergency meeting. The accountant called us in and said, oh, if you guys don't start making a bit more money, you're going to go bankrupt pretty soon. That kind of pushed us to be like, okay, we need to open more days. We need to figure out how to make a bit more. And I think the loan that we had... I think we'd touted to pay it off in about five years based on X amount of loan repayment, uh, X amount every month paying off. I think we had it paid off within about 13 months. So we managed to turn it around. And like that involved an awful lot of work, recruitment, Mm -hmm. training. And from my perspective, the biggest challenge, handing over control of a lot of the elements because, yeah, going from me doing everything to like slowly but surely handing over like I couldn't do everything anymore. Mm. So that was that was the biggest challenge for me. So they say the best marketing is a great product. You've nailed that. But in opening up Loon, whether it be in Elwood or the bigger premises in Fitzroy and now the city and soon to be Brisbane and Sydney, you've got branding issues, you've got marketing issues, you've got people issues, you've got interior design of the premises issues. There's yep. all these things. Yep. Does that all start with you? Okay, that, that's, there's a lot of questions there. A lot of jobs there. A lot of jobs. So first of all, we've never once paid for marketing. I run the Loon Instagram and that's pretty much the only advertising that we do. And that account's grown organically from being my private Instagram nine years ago to now, I think, 176,000 followers. Interestingly, we haven't even touched on zombie apocalypse from last year. I.e. COVID. Yep. There was a period. Can I just pull you up on one thing you said? Marketing is not just advertising. I mean, marketing oh, is everything. Everything is marketing. So your customer experience, your customer service, your, of course, everything. So you probably do. I would argue that you spend probably a lot of money on marketing. But you just don't know it. Yes, you probably allocate it to something else. Probably, hmm. but also we decide the customer experience, and that's all. Yes. That's all analyzed, worked on, and refined in house. So we've never had an an outside expert no, no. come in and, and help us with that. What do you do? Sit down and create a timeline of a customer c- approaching the building or finding out about the brand and the croissant through to buying and leaving and eating? And everything? I don't even know if we've done that. Right. I think And I think the customer experience has developed very organically without us even controlling that. Like mm-hmm. harking back to Elwood days where part of the experience was standing in the line and making friends with the people standing in front and behind you mm-hmm. and having that moment where it's your turn at the counter and feeling like you're the only person in the world at that moment with all this anticipation and build up and that person standing behind the counter looking after you, answering every little question that you want to know about these pastries that you've been smelling and thinking about for the 45 minutes you've been standing in line. Yeah. So it's developed quite organically, but I do think a lot of it has been driven from the Elwood days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So back to that. So you you obviously obviously not responsible for every part of it now, and I think your brother's very good at very HR. So we've now got an HR manager, but Cam's very good at he's very good at managing people. Yes. I think our roles have have naturally delineated. So where Cam's very good at the business management side, like building maintenance, management of people, 
management of customer experience, I'm very product and quality right. control focused. Yep. And I think that we do work so well together so good. because our skill sets are so separate and complementary mm-hmm. and there's rarely very little o- overlap. I mean, we're brother and sister. We have our disagreements, but I mean, we've been working together for coming up on eight years very closely together now. And I think Loon's never been healthier. What's with the name Loon, which means moon in French? It does. There's a lot behind it. I've loved the moon ever since I was about two years old. So mum tells me that she used to have to take me outside to say goodnight to the moon at my request. And then I studied aerospace engineering, which obviously isn't just Formula One. It's space exploration and rockets and aircraft. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was living in the UK, my boyfriend at the time for our one year anniversary, we went to Bruges and we went into the Tintin shop and there was this incredible poster of the rocket taking off from the desert and Tintin's in the- Famous old cover. Yeah, exactly. Objective Loon. And he said to me, I think I was I was starting to become unwell at the time and, and developing a love for baking. And he said, oh, if you ever open a cafe or a business, you should call it Objective Loon. And then finally, like, it's a French word and a croissant loon is like crescent moon. Beautiful. And per- croissants are moon shaped. So it <clears throat> was kind of perfect. You were judged best croissant in the world. How recently. wild is that? Incredible. Like who, who it wasn't does- it wasn't even recently. It was back in Elwood days. So a journalist from the New York Times was in Melbourne and a friend of mine who used to come and sit on the staircase next to me while I baked and I'd give him one pan au chocolat fresh out of the oven because that's all we could <laughs> literally. All the others were sold. Yeah. So he <clears> said, oh, hey, I've got a friend with me. Can we come and sit on the steps next to you? I'd like to show him. So they come in and I looked at them both. I'm like, well, you can have one each. <laughs> and so Oliver... The journalist ordered a plain croissant and my other friend ordered a pulled pork croissant, which was the special for the day. And I think Oliver went back to New York and said to his editors, well, I went to this incredible shop. Like he said, what was your highlight of Melbourne? And Oliver said, I went to this incredible little bakery in Elwood in the middle of nowhere where there was a line around the block and I got to eat one plain croissant sitting on the steps and about six months later an article came out in the New York Times saying it was, for his money, the best croissant in the world. So and he, he claimed con- it. He considers himself a bit of a croissant aficionado. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he claimed it. Wow. But Make- it's very subjective, really. Oh, yeah. Is, is there a croissant? Uh, I had um, Stu Gregor on the show a few weeks ago. He's the founder of Four Pillars Gin. Oh, amazing. Won the best gin in the world tw- two times in a row from the London Wine and Spirit festival or something like wow. that. So yeah, is there a croissant board of the world or I'm assuming that that, the, that like I know that in in Paris and France they've got the like the meilleur croissant or the oh, meilleur baguette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything in the world and there's certainly not in Australia, but I do think it's an incredibly subjective thing. Like it's it's all to our personal tastes. Kate, let's talk about innovation. I don't think enough small businesses spend enough time on innovation because they're so busy. You know, innovation requires you to sort of sit, stop, sit back, reflect on what you're doing and what could be doing and what's possible. You know, it's quite a, a process in itself. Absolutely. What does innovation look like inside of Loon? <sighs> innovation at Loon comes in many formats. And I think the most obvious one is with the pastry. And I've spoken about that already. Mm-hmm. But the attitude and the philosophy we take with pastry innovation, we try and apply it to all aspects of our business. An example of that is a couple of years ago, we decided to take our business to be fully cashless. And 
that was for a number of different reasons, but we wanted to be industry leading in that. It's safer hygienically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's safer for the business in terms of not having thousands of dollars of cash on the premises. It's much better from a cost perspective to not pay a staff member to stand there and count thousands of dollars of cash at the end of the day and then make the dangerous walk to the bank having to bank it. So in terms of innovation, I think we were one of the first businesses in Melbourne to move that way. And then obviously last year during COVID-19 and lockdown, we saw a lot of businesses having to take that tack for health and safety purposes. Do you basically give your staff permission to come up with ideas, to be constantly thinking about ways to Absolutely. improve, identifying blockages, problems, friction in the business where they can tap you or one, your brother or your business partner on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, I think we could do this better. And yep. No idea an, is not listened to awesome. in the business, um, whether it be how to manage casual contracts, how to improve the customer experience, what the retail shelf should look like, putting solar panels on the roof, anything and everything in the business is open to improvement, iteration, and innovation, as small or as big as that is. How do you decide? Because there's no shortage of ideas, as I found out, but you know, how, do you have a criteria or a filter? You don't just, if a staff member says, hey, we should do this, you don't just go, okay, yeah, let's do it. What's no, we the, test it. What's the filter? You, like, you will test every idea? If, if a staff member has an idea, we give them the opportunity to test that idea and prove to us that it's better than what we're already doing. And that, like, that's a very engineering mindset. Like, in terms of experimentation, mm. everything deserves an opportunity to be tested or experimented. And if it proves to be better than what we're already doing, we would be mad not to move to that. So, I mean, some ideas that are completely wild, maybe from time to time get shelved. Mm-hmm. But I often find any idea, even if the whole concept is wild, there There'll is some part of that idea that that is still very valid and worthy mm. and worth listening to and testing. As an engineer, you're a, I'm being uh, stereotypical here, but you're a very rational person. Yes. A lot of business, especially marketing, is emotional. Yes. Brand buildings, and I define a brand as being an emotional attachment. That's what it is. Yep. Do you struggle with that side? Yes, definitely. I'm very emotionally attached to Loon. Like, it came from me at a time where I was unwell and recovering, and I feel like it is, it was a big part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also not something that I did just to fill in hours. It's something that I was incredibly passionate about. And it was a product that I developed and a brand that I started. Mm -hmm. And from time to time, the emotional connection to the business has presented a challenge for me. As I mentioned earlier, like the control, the letting go of a lot of Mm -hmm. jobs. But it's interesting because the emotional attachment to it, in recent times, I've learned that this staff that we've found to take this business forward with us are our most valuable commodity because if we can find the right people who have the same philosophy and values as we do and the way we run our business, they're the ones that are going to continue to take that forward and improve it and build it and allow it to grow and giving them the autonomy and the, the room to bring their new ideas into the business is the only way and the healthiest way for the business to carry forward. So letting go of the control and maybe somewhat of the emotional attachment is vital to the ongoing health and life of the business. Jamie Cook, uh, who is the founder of Stone and Wood, one of the great beers in Australia, in fact, I think voted the second best craft beer in Australia of recent years. He has a star employee share scheme, 
very big on rewarding the staff and involving them and giving them equity if you like. Yep. Is, do you do anything like that? Uh, we don't at the moment, but we're probably at the point where especially expanding to Brisbane and interstate and we're now really building a head office team as well. So in the last 12 months, it's been all about creating structure within the organisation to support growth over states and over borders because mm. it's somewhat easy to control when like I'm walking distance to both stores, but I can't walk to Brisbane. No. Cameron can't. Well, Cameron's actually going to move to Brisbane. That's how committed we are to our interstate growth. But, I, feel, I feel a little business becoming a medium-sized business potentially becoming, could even be a franchise. I think that's a dirty word. I, I thought you were going to say yeah, that. But it's an expanding business for sure. You're and, looking to build an empire? What's the dream? Is it like, uh, you know, is it like a you know McDonald's one on every corner or is it? No, I think. I knew it wasn't, but I just had to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know that we're opening in Brisbane. We know that we're opening in Sydney and we know that that's, not the final step. So I think for me, what's critical as a personal ambition for Loon is that I don't want to get to the point in my life where I look back and I go, I didn't allow that business to reach its full potential. Mm. But the full potential still has to be something that that sits morally with me. Mm. And I mean, I love the idea of one or two Loon stores being overseas. Oh, wow. So actually reaching markets and- Paris? And, That'd be crazy. Wouldn't it? I wonder how they'd cope with that. Oh. Well, I wonder how it would be accepted. But well, I, I can't lie, it has crossed my mind. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I've got to ask you about uh, the rational business of pricing because I'm reading a book at the moment by an old mate of mine, Andrew Griffiths. It's called Someone Has to Be the Most Expensive. It May As Well Be You. Yep. I imagine the price point of your croissants is at the higher end of the croissant world. Absolutely. Is pricing a lever that you constantly work with in order to control demand and kind of not make, you know, make sure that you maintain quality and uh, position the product as premium? We don't use the price as a lever to control that, but we price our product at what we know it deserves. What am um, I paying for a plain Lune croissant? $5.90. It's all right. And you know what? It's very... It's intrinsically linked to the fact that when you line up at Fitzroy, if you've never had a plain croissant before, if you've only ever had one that was like $3 at another bakery, while you're standing in that line, there is a spotless precision glass cube in front of you with five or six chefs in their pristine whites Mm, standing there putting the greatest amount of care and attention into the product that you're about to eat. Mm -hmm. And the knowledge of how the product is produced and how much care and detail is put into it, I believe gives people the confidence that whatever that price is, they're happy to pay it. It's funny, my dad, for as long as I can remember, my dad said to me, something is worth what someone is prepared to pay for it. And there will be some people that aren't happy to pay what our product demands or what we ask for it but there are many people that are because they realize that they're not just getting a croissant, they're also getting an experience. And Mm. to many people, the standing in the line is tied up in that experience. So, How do you stay relevant? Like you've got a business, you've got a great business, you've got people lining up around the corner, you're opening up in other cities where you're going to be obviously going to have to tap the neighbors on the shoulder and say, listen, I'm sorry, but we're about to open and you're going to have queues of people out the front. Um, And that's wonderful. It's 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 a small business owner's dream what you've done and you've worked hard for it. But maintaining, you can't just assume that this is, we've cracked the nut and this is how it's going to be. No. So 
how do you sort of stay relevant and well, I think you continue listening to your customers. Mm. And I mean, we have an an inquiries email address. And for many years it was me that answered that. But now it's it's one of our staff's job. But mm. all the inquiry emails still come into my inbox. And as as a matter of purpose, I make sure that I read them all because I want to know what mm. the customers are feeding back to us. Good on you. And I think it's really important, like stay connected with your customer. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons we're staying relevant is the fact that we do put so much energy and effort into continuing to innovate our plain croissant and the croissant pastry. So that meets part of our customer base that just want the traditional product done as best as it can be done. The other part of our customer base that wants that continual experimental experience where we're pushing what we can do with the croissant pastry. But then we also offer something called Loon Lab, which is run every Friday, Saturday, Sunday as a formal seated degustation. So this is like the first class ticket to Loon. 75 bucks a seat. It is. That was a good. Did you look that up or did, did. was that a guess? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, be, I'm dying to go to one. So oh, what, what, what does it involve? As my guest. Oh, thank you. Good. It's a three course degustation. The first course is a traditional croissant 10 minutes out of the oven, which I think is the oh. earliest moment that you can eat it. Otherwise, Hold the legs, I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's brought out on a tray with by one of the bakers and you get to pick the one off the tray you want. Yeah. And that's because I'm the type of person when I go to a bakery, yes, I know the one <laughs> yeah, that I want. Yeah, yeah. I'm not having any cronut. I'll have that one on the left. No, not that one. Exactly. The- that one. Yeah. It's like a hot cross bun. I want one that's come from the middle of the batch where you've had to tear it out. I yes. don't want one of the drier that's right. edges. Yeah. Thank you. It's a read thing. It's a read thing. The second course is a savory experimental and the third course is a sweet experimental. And we change the menu every two months for a couple of reasons. One is to reflect seasonality. It means we get to work with more local producers and growers. It keeps our chefs engaged and interested and a great creative outlet for them. And it's quite difficult to continually be coming up with new ways to utilise croissant pastry mm-hmm. where it is still the hero of the dish mm-hmm. and is all the ingredients that you've brought together are complementing it. But then finally, like we've had people that haven't missed a Loon Lab. So ever since October 2015, they've attended every single menu that we've presented and wow. they're still coming. So... It's genius. You're actually having people pay you for you to test ideas that you may at some point take to market. I think that's very clever. Yeah, essentially it is that. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's also a great example of being able to expand the brand into other areas because most people who say run a bakery go, well, we can just sell cakes and bread, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we do. But you're creating experiences and, and charging premiums as part of that. I think it's fantastic, you know, like... I, had a, I remember there's a cafe down in Mornington that would, it's an Italian cafe, and they'd take you on cooking tours of Italy down to Sicily once Brilliant. a year. And I think the ability to think creatively like that, and how, yep. what else can this brand do besides just sell the product that we're here to sell? Well, it's interesting. So obviously Loon is in a medium business phase or going into that, but I'm actually in the process with Cam and Nathan of getting ready to launch a brand new tiny business. Of course you are. So it's called Moon. And it's a product that I've eaten before in New York that I absolutely love. And I don't think, similar to the croissant, I don't think anybody's doing it like this particular one that I have in New York. So we, during the second lockdown last year, we purchased commercial real estate up the road on Rose Street to move our head offices to. And 
it was an old cafe and we've fully renovated it, but we've left the commercial kitchen out the back and we're converting the atrium area, which used to be the outdoor seating, into a roofed off area where we're going to just trial this new idea as a pop-up. And Ooh, if like it's that. successful and it takes, like the market takes to it, we will endeavour to find a permanent site for it. And then our idea to utilise the commercial kitchen and the pop-up area outside is as a business incubator, Mm. whether it be ideas that we have or potentially young people out there that they have a great idea but they just don't have the capital behind them. Around food? Around food. Fantastic. So I think there are a lot of people with great ideas out there but not a lot of people have the business knowledge which Cam, Nathan and I can also advise and support on. And if someone's got a great idea but not the money behind it, they still deserve to have their opportunity to test it out. And I don't know if anything like that exists out there. So that's sort of a whole other branch that's not related. When does that open? We're hoping the pop-up will open sometime mid to late May. So we're close. How's your work-life balance? It's really good at the moment. Um, It's probably the healthiest it's ever been. What's it look like? Sounds like you work a lot. I do. I, I probably do some type of work every day. But you know the saying like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I actually really don't agree with that. Like work is work, but work makes me feel good. Like at the end of the day, if I'm loving what I'm doing, I feel really stimulated and fulfilled by it, but it's still work. And I acknowledge that every day I do some level of work, whether it just be checking my emails or posting an Instagram or I, responding I to- I the opposite. I thought you were going to say every day I do some level of something for me. But you just said you do some. I would have thought oh, you do work every day. I do do work. It. I do do work every day. But there are days of the week where I don't do a lot of work. Can you switch and, off? Uh, I'm not great mm. at switching off. I've I've got a fairly overactive mind, mm. but I actively try and do things. Like I know I mentioned to you before the interview that I've just come back from a retreat in Queensland. So I consciously try and do things like that to force myself to have the balance. And it's also just continual like maintenance of mental health and rational thinking and Mm. balance. I do yoga three or four times a week. I Like I know it seems like a small thing, but I've got a beautiful black Labrador and we do a big like seven or eight kilometer walk every single morning. And that's just a good head clearer for me to start the day. So, And I consider all of that to be very much time that's not work. Mm. But then... I have at least four days a week where I'm full-time at work, but the other three days a week can sometimes push out to be full-time hours and and often it's just elements of the day that are checking in or answering questions or mm. checking in with the staff. So yeah. You love it? I love it. I can tell. Yeah, you just got, I wish this was a video medium because the glow and the smile on your face and the depth of passion in your eyes is just, oh, thank you. Is just awesome. It's you funny. Know. When I was working in Formula One, every day I went to work, I felt like I was a little kid playing dress-ups, pretending to be this grown-up that I thought I was going to be. And there hasn't been a day at Loon where I haven't felt 100% confident in my own skin. And every day I walk into that business, I know that alongside my business partners, nobody else knows more about Loon than I do. And I could be asked any question and answer with utter confidence anything about my business or the product and just feel complete confidence in myself. So I I finally don't feel like that kid dressing up as a grown-up. Like I feel like I've grown into the person that I was supposed to grow into. Kate, 
Great story. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing. Pleasure. I just, it's inspiring stuff. Oh, thanks, uh, Tim. It was lovely to be here. Anyone listening, uh, Loon, Fitzroy, Melbourne CBD. Soon look it to up be on Brisbane. Google, you'll find it. Get on the Instagram. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much, Tim. How good is Kate Reed? Seriously, that is one motivated entrepreneur. I love chatting with her. You'll find a pic of the almond croissant I tried after the interview over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 552. In case you were wondering what it looked like, it tasted unbelievable. That butter from Normandy, it's the, it's the real deal, clearly. Hey, here's what grabbed my attention from my chat with Loon's Kate Reed. By the way, no relation. Attention grabber number one. I love how she used her engineering skills to reverse engineer the humble croissant. What could you reverse engineer to help grow your business? Interesting question. Attention grabber number two. I love how focused Kate is on creating the world's best croissant to the point that she only uses butter from a farm in Normandy. That's focus. A bit like the last week's guest, Simon Rowe of Sleep Bus, who is laser-focused on providing homeless people with a safe night's sleep. So it raises the question, how focused are you? Or aren't you? Hmm, something to mull over. And attention grabber number three. I love how Kate's partnering with people, including a brother, who have skills that she admits to not having. Quite rare for a small business owner, really. Many of whom like to do everything themselves. Hashtag control freak. Yeah, but at the expense of what, right? Does that sound like you? If it does, maybe you need to do something about it. Take a lesson from Kate's book. That's what grabbed my attention. Now, I want you to write down this number and call me after the show's over and let me know what grabbed your attention. Plus six one for overseas listeners, 480-015-150. Leave a message on the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline, just like listener Craig did. Hi, Timbo. It's uh, Craig Griffiths. Just letting you know how I apply what you've been teaching over the years. Um, To start with, I'm not a small business person. I'm actually a screenwriter. I write feature films. And this is how I've applied what you've been teaching to get a career in movies. I looked at the movie landscape. I had to identify a problem, just as any product, a film script is a product, I had to identify a problem that my script would solve. The biggest problem in film these days is production costs. Marvel films cost $300 million, no one's got that sort of money. So I had to identify a cheap way of making film. And the cheapest films around are the single location horror films, you know, kids in a cabin in the forest somewhere getting chased by a beast, a murderer or a monster. Think Blair Witch Project. But that is a really crowded marketplace as well. If you look at that segment, every kid with an iPhone is running in the forest making a film. So we needed to use that production idea somewhere else. So I moved it into a very underserviced area, which is the crime drama. I then looked at crime dramas and went, what single location would a crime drama be? Well, where do you get one or two people in a location together? That's a police interview. So how can I make a police interview interesting? I've come up with the idea for the hostage. Corrupt policeman, abduct someone off the street, they're going to beat the confession out of him. And that's the premise behind the hostage. It twists and turns and all that sort of stuff. But it made a very, very cheap film. And I managed to sell that. And the producers of that have now commissioned more work from me, optioned more of my scripts. And based on that, that momentum, I've also then gone into the UK film industry and from there promoted other scripts. And I've also sold another one called The Valley, which goes into production soon. 
The hostage is going to be released later this year. If anybody wants to see it, they can just go to our YouTube and search for The Hostage 2021. So thanks, Tim. I've been listening for years, and this is how you can apply the basics of good marketing knowledge in virtually any industry, and it'll pay dividends for you. Just want to say thank you and hope that everyone that you love is safe and healthy. Hey, thank you so much, Craig. That is a fantastic story in the making, I reckon. Sounds like you've got a few films in you. And like you say, you can apply the marketing fundamentals to any idea that you would love to take to market. Love it, Craig. Thank you so much. Everyone else, do give me a buzz on the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480-015-150. Next episode, we catch up with a micro business owner who's working smart to build a community of fit dads all over the world. And some of the things that he's bringing to market are really, really interesting. Be sure to grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're loving the podcast, then you'll find 551 more episodes on the Listener app. This podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed. The music bed written, produced, and sung by Lockie Dolly and pulled together by my highly influential producer in Dave Zulawinski. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now. Listener.